Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and other new innovations in plant genetic improvement that can help people and planet. And not just plant genetic improvement, I guess, you know, animal improvement too, and people improvement if we're talking about cancer, which we've done now. My name's Kevin Falta, and today we'll be talking about sweet potatoes. And more about sweet potatoes because of an interesting little twist in the sweet potato genome. Meaning that there's something in there that um, some people have traditionally claimed would be a dangerous and um, alien introduction into that plant. Many have criticized genetic engineering because they say insertion of foreign genes is dangerous and shouldn't be done. Yet the sweet potato is one example of many where foreign sequences from horizontal gene transfer are naturally there. We won't just focus on that particular issue, but instead we'll look at the sweet potato in general. Where is it cultivated? Why is it cultivated? And how can it lend to world food security? We'll touch on the genetic engineering part at the end. Today we'll speak with Dr. Jan Kruza. He's with the Crop Protection Division at the International Potato Center, or CIP. This is in Lima, Peru. And CIP is part of CGIAR, the Consultative Group for International Agriculture Research. And they're a group that has many areas or many different research campuses throughout the world, particularly focusing on issues of food security. Well, welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Croza. Thank you. So when we look at your record and uh, go back through what you've published over the years, it really looks like your expertise is in virology. Could you tell me a little bit about your background and really what you're studying today? Sure. Well, actually, I started my um, my career um, studying plant breeding at the at the University of Wageningen uh, with a with a strong focus actually on biotechnology. I was working in two thesis projects on transgenic cassava and, and transgenic tomatoes uh, or starch modification and, and disease resistance respectively. Um, but I 
kind of when I was doing that work, I got a, I got a keen interest in, in virology because there was a lot of molecular work involved. And so when I finished my, uh, my master's degree, I got an opportunity to work at the Institute of Biotechnology in Helsinki on, uh, on sweet potato viruses and characterizing them. And so I took that opportunity and worked there for half a year on both viruses as well as some, some bacterial diseases on potato. And then I got another opportunity to do a PhD um, in, in Sweden, Swedish Agricultural University. And so I moved there, and then I really got into the hardcore virology work, uh, looking at uh, virus diseases of sweet potato uh, and how the viruses interact and, and cause severe diseases. And from there on, I kind of moved on in the virology field uh, into um, development work and, and uh, International Potato Center, uh, where I'm right now. And when I first got here, I was working on... Uh, trying to generate the disease resistance, so virus disease resistance, uh, particularly in sweet potato, uh, using um, uh, RNAi um, and studying in more detail um, the, the interaction between viruses. The sweet potato is kind of an interesting case. It's, uh, it's infected by quite a few viruses, but it's, it's quite resistant to most viruses. So, so you see low titers and, and few symptoms, but then there's, got, there's this one virus which I, I, I call it the HIV of sweet potato because when it uh, infects sweet potato, it, it makes it super susceptible to a lot of viruses and you get this uh, complex disease, which is very severe and causes great yield losses. And so we were trying to, I was trying to understand that interaction and we could finally narrow it down to one particular protein that was produced by uh, the HIV of sweet potato, let's say, uh, which is an, uh, an RNA 3 protein. And it turns out it's it's interfering with the RNA silencing mechanism of sweet potato. That isn't the RNA silencing mechanism is is a mechanism that um, uh, is used by the plants to resist viruses. And so this this HIV of sweet potatoes interfering with that specifically by cutting up small interfering RNAs. So from there on, um, at some point I changed position and I became the the head of virology here at SIP. And then I, I kind of switched my focus more towards um, diagnostics um, and um, looking at di virus diversity uh, throughout the world, um, particularly in sweet potato, because that's where most of the funding was coming from at that point of time, but also to some extent in potato. And so we've been developing um, different kinds of di diagnostic approaches. Um, one of the methods we developed here was something we call small RNA sequencing and assembly. Um, we've been using that now to, uh, to do continent-wide continent -wide viromes of, uh, of sweet potato in Africa, for example. Um, and it's turning out really quite interesting to see how, how, how diverse viruses are and, and how they are, how they are um, evolving. But at the same time, we use this information to, to develop diagnostic tools that can be used on the ground that are highly sensitive. And you work at CGIAR. What is the central mission of that organization, and how many campuses are there worldwide? Yeah, so the CGIR, it, it's originally it stands for the Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research. Um, it was set up in the in this between the, in the sixties and seventies, uh, and it encompasses a number of, of different uh, research centers. The, the goal, the overall goal of the CGIR is to reduce poverty, to improve food and nutritional security, and to, prove to improve natural resource management and, and ecosystem services throughout the world, and particularly in, in developing countries. Um, and so there's about 15 centers um, that are under this umbrella. 
it's evolved over the last 10 years. It, it used to be a consultative group. It became a consortium, and now it's a system. Um, but each of these centers, um, they have certain uh, specialty areas. Um, uh, some of them work on rice, some on maize and wheat, uh, some on certain ag- agroecologies. There's livestock centers and fish centers and, and agroforestry centers. And here in Peru, we have the International Potato Center, and, and we focus on uh potato, sweet potato, and under other Andean root and tuber crops, which are mostly very small, so we're not doing a lot of work on them. Um, but we do have them in our mandate. And so right now you're actually in Peru. You're in Lima, Peru. What is the significance of Lima, Peru with respect to potato origins? Well, um, the center of diversity of potato is, is located here in, uh, in, in the south of Peru, south of Peru, north of Bolivia. So um, uh, most likely potato originated from here, and, and you can actually see it when you just go to any supermarket here. The amount of varieties of potatoes that you can find is, is really quite staggering. I remember I was surprised when I came from Europe, you know, where a potato is just a potato, and I came here and you had this large variety of potato, black, red, yellow, mm-hmm. different colors, different shapes, and that's just the commercial ones that you find here in Peru, uh, in Lima. Um, the real vari- variation you find if you go up to the highlands where uh, the small farmers are producing their, their, their own local varieties, and they probably have more than 5,000 different ones of them. Uh, they're difficult to get here in Lima, but they're really delicious. They have different tastes. Some of them are buttery. Some of them almost taste nutty, and their textures are different, and, and they have these beautiful colors and shapes, you know. So, um, And that's why the Potato Center was founded here, because this is where the genetic diversity of potatoes is, is, is available. Uh, and largest, and so this can be exploited for breeding programs to improve uh, potato varieties, um, particularly for under tr- tropical conditions. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of the pictures that are online of the potato diversity, and it blows me away. I would love to go there someday and be able to look at all the p- different potatoes and taste them, and it, it, it really is amazing, and I would encourage listeners to go to Google or other search engine and put in uh, potato diversity and look at the images that come up because it's really diverse. But that diversity is great for flavors and colors, but also for production traits like disease resistance. And that's been something that your group has participated in to some degree with um, the resistance genes that have come from wild potatoes that are now being used in conventional potatoes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so we have we have one project which is, is going quite well right now we've we've had a, a few generations of field trials in uganda where we have transferred um resistance genes from wild uh, potato uh, species um into um uh, a cultivar um and we've done that in a kind of trying to do it in an intelligent way so the disease we're dealing with with is late light um it's a disease that has been known ever since we've produced uh, potato it's it's caused some devastation in the past, it still caused, causes devastation. It, it caused the great Irish potato famine, for example. More than a million people died and another million emigrated to the U.S. But this is still the major disease of potato. And, and nowadays it's controlled by spraying fungicides. Um, and you need to spray up to 15, 20 times a season to be able to control this disease. So it's a, it's a great environmental impact if you consider it. And it's a cost to the farmer, right? And especially in, in developing countries, uh, farmers, they can't afford that kinds of costs. So resistance is, is really the way to go. And 
over the last hundred years, breeders have been trying to introduce uh, resistance genes, which have been known from wild species, into potato cultivars. Uh, and they've gotten resistant cultivars, but the problem was that usually they lasted for about two, three years, and then the pathogen overcame the resistance and, and, and you were back at zero. And so they, they kind of gave up on it at some point. But in the last 20 years, with the, with the advent of, of, of molecular biology and gene cloning, um, scientists have been able to, to isolate more and more of these resistance genes from different wild species. And at the same time, they have been able to identify the, um, the factors from the pathogen that these resistance genes are recognizing. Um, and doing various types of experiments and, and, and research, they have been able to identify certain resistance genes um, that are more stable and more durable because they are recognizing factors from the pathogen that, that is much more difficult for the pathogen to lose them, or it's a, it's a, it's a more array of, of factors, which they will have to lose all of them to be able to, lack, to lose the recognition by the resistance gene. And so we've, among the pool of resistance genes that, that are available now and that, that we know uh, we have information about, we've selected three that, had, that were known to confer, let's say, a broad range of resistance, uh, a high level of resistance, and where we also knew something about the, the factors that they were recognizing. Um, and so we stacked them together and, um, and put them uh, together, three genes, uh, in a cassette and transferred them into, um, into preferred potato varieties um, that they're growing in East Africa. Um, and they give a really very high level of resistance. And because we have been selecting three different genes, each of which... Uh, recognize a number of different factors from the pathogen, uh, we expect it will be much harder for the pathogen to be able to overcome uh, this stacked resistance, as we call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that was a change that was introduced by genetic engineering and not by traditional breeding? This is a change that has been introduced by uh, genetic engineering um, and not by traditional breeding. It would be impossible by traditional breeding. Um, Potato is um, is a difficult crop to breed for because it's uh, it's outcrossing and it's tetraploid and highly heterozygous. So whenever you make a cross, you you lose your original uh, characteristics of your potato, and um, so to get all the traits together, including then three different uh, resistance genes, would be really really hard um, to do by conventional breeding. As an example, just one of the genes that we have used have been introduced into uh, um, commercial um, uh, potato cultivars, which are not very good, but they're used in, uh, in organic agriculture. And it took 70 years for one gene. Yeah, and then the hazard you run there is the potential for resistance to that one gene, and uh, now you're back to square one, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but so your work is mostly focused on sweet potato. And it's something I really never really thought about too much is what is a sweet potato? I mean, it's a different genus than, than the Solanum tuberosum potato. Uh, what are the differences between sweet potato and the standard potato, maybe both in evolution and in domestication and um, maybe just in its practical features? All right, yes. Uh, so, well, as you already mentioned, they're they are different species. They're from different genera. They're from different families, in fact. Um, sweet potato belongs to the morning glory family, uh, which um, 
I'm sure many people know. Um, they produce these nice purple, uh, reddish flowers uh, in in the mornings um, and are, are known as ornamentals as well. Um, but there's another key difference between potato and sweet potato. Um, so potato um, produces tubers. Um, and tubers, uh, they are actually modified stems. Um, so what a potato does, it, it produces a stem that goes into the ground and then it swells up and you get your spud, your potato. Um, in the case of sweet potato, it produces roots. So it's not a stem, it's actually a root that swells up. And so you have a, a root that you're actually eating. Whereas in the potato, you're actually eating a piece of stem, uh, just a swelled up piece of stem. <laughs> and so that has implications uh, in the way you, you manage the, the crop. So um, stems, they have nodes, as you know. So a potato, you can you can take it and you can plant it and, and a new potato will grow out of a, it will sprout out of a node. Um, roots don't have nodes. If you put a sweet potato in the ground, you will get sprouts coming out, a lot of them. But it's not really the... At least in the tropics, that's not the way they multiply. They multiply it by stem cuttings. So you just take a cutting from your previous crop and you stick it in the ground and it will start rooting again. And um, that's how it multiplies. That's really interesting because I didn't know any of that. So when you say it's part of the morning glory family, that was something that uh, was news to me. And I, I love sweet potatoes. I eat them all the time. And uh, it was that's all pretty new. Is there anything else interesting about the sweet potato, especially as it may have a role in world food security? Well, as, in the U.S., you usually have these these orange flesh varieties, which are which are very orange. Um, it's the same orange color that make carrots orange. It's beta carotene, and beta carotene is is pro vitamin A. And um, so, in in a, in a lot of developing countries, there are, there are serious issues with vitamin A deficiency uh, in uh, people's diets, and, and this causes a lot of infant, infant mortality and, and, and uh, pregnant mother mortality as well, because it makes you more susceptible to diseases. And so, um, the sweet potato it contains so high amounts of, of beta carotene that you don't need a lot of it to be able to satisfy your daily requirements. So. Um, SIP uh, is is having a big program in in, in Africa, uh, particularly uh, trying to promote these orange flesh varieties uh, as a, a natural um, uh, supplement to uh, uh, obtain their vitamin A uh, um, necessities. The thing is that although a lot of sweet potatoes grown in Africa, traditionally the types that they grow there are not orange flesh. So they are white fleshed. They are high in uh, the dry matter, so they are very starchy. And, and not particularly sweet. And so um, the trick there is how to convince all these people to to switch from those varieties to the, the orange ones, which are usually a bit softer and a bit sweeter. Children love them. That's great. But it's usually the men in the, in the families that make decisions, and they want these hard, starchy ones. So... It's, it's a question of informing people uh, and, and making them understand the importance of these varieties and also pre preparing new orange flesh varieties that perhaps are not so sweet, have high star starch and dry matter, uh, but are still orange and provide the, the amount of uh, beta-carotene that is required in the diet. Yeah, down here in Florida, in the USA, we actually have a, a push to grow the purple-fleshed sweet potatoes that were developed by the USDA. I actually have one in my kitchen right now. And uh, it's actually a really nice, uh, it looks really good and it tastes good, um, unlike some of the other purple-fleshed potatoes I've had. 
But uh, I, I can see the problem with trying to introduce something like an orange flesh or purple flesh potato into a uh, into an area where culturally people have expectations of something very standard. And uh, so, so how, how much of that do you feel is a problem? No, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I think it is probably the biggest problem <laughs> to, 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 because it's, it's really difficult to, to get people to change their, their habits uh, about certain things. If, if they, if for somebody a sweet potato is a white thing that is not sweet and it's, it's really starchy, to convince them to eat something that's orange and perhaps a bit sweeter than they're used to and and not as starchy. Um, but it's, it's, it's come with a health message. So we've been trying to intervene in uh, in clinics where mothers come to, um, to give them binds, um, to give them information about how this, uh, how, how eating orange plus sweet potato can improve their health and their children's health. Um, and, also having school gardens, uh, introducing these kind of information to school. So it will probably take a generation almost, but um, but it will it will work eventually. <laughs> and and it's, it is working because more and more orange plus sweet potato is being grown. Well, that's very nice. That's really, I'm so glad that we talked about that. Um, right now we'll take a little bit of a break. So I'm speaking today with Dr. Jan Kruza from the CGI AR. Uh, campus or the CGIAR location in Lima, Peru at the International Potato Center. We'll be right back in just a moment with more Talking Biotech. Greetings, Talking Biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that talking biotech tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So, tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. So we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast today, speaking with our guest from Lima, Peru, Dr. Juan Cruza. Um, he's with the International Potato Center at CGIAR, and uh, a, an organization, as was discussed, is very invested in world food security. And his specialization is working on sweet potato. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today was because of last year's paper in PNAS. 
And the findings of this paper tell us that there was a horizontal gene transfer event, a, a tDNA, a transfer DNA, that was identified in the cultivated sweet potato. Now, for our listeners who may or may not know what tDNA is, what is tDNA, and what does it tell us about sweet potato history? So, tDNA is um, it stands for transfer DNA. It's it's a it's a piece of DNA that is found in a plasmid, uh, and a plasmid is in itself in itself a circular DNA that is found in bacteria of a certain bacterial species uh, belonging to the genus Agrobacterium. And so this is a this is a genus that is closely related to Rhizobium, which is another type of bacteria that has a close interaction with plants, uh, but a beneficial one, where uh, where it's a nitrogen fixing bacteria, so it, it enables plants to to fix nitrogen. But Agrobacterium, uh, on the other hand, is a pathogen of plants. And uh, when it infects uh, plants, it causes um, tumors or hairy roots. Um, and the way it does this is by, upon infection of the plant, it is able to transfer this tDNA, which is encoded in its plasmid, into the plant and integrate it into the genome of the plant that it's infecting. And on this tDNA, usually what you find are genes that are involved in hormone synthesis, and those cause the plant cell to start dividing um, uh, uncontrollably, either causing uh, a tumor, which is called a crown gall, or some hairy roots. At the same time, it also encodes a gene um, that produces a certain, a certain carbon, um, a carbon compound called opines. And this carbon compound is then produced by the plant in, in big amounts, um, and it's a carbon compound that other bacteria usually can't metabolize, but agrobacterium can metabolize it. So what the bacteria is actually doing is really smart. It's inserting genes into the plant to make it cause a tumor where it's going to produce a lot of food for that particular bacteria. Um, so perfect strategy. So this was discovered somewhere back in the 80s. And... Um, some smart scientists realized, hey, look at that. Um, this bacteria can transfer pieces of DNA into the plant. Let's try to use that system, and we'll remove all those genes that are causing the disease, and we'll put the genes that we want to put in the plant um, to make them drought-resistant or disease-resistant or whatever. Um, let's use this bacteria, use these tDNAs, change them so it introduces the genes that we want into the plant, and like that we can make a, a better plant. Um, and that led to this whole biotechnological revolution where, where transgenic plants were made possible. Um, uh, and so it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's analogous to find uh, a sweet potato naturally with these tDNAs, with a number of genes on them. Um, it's analogous to a transgenic plant. Um, in a transgenic plant made in the laboratory, we have chosen which genes to put in it. In sweet potato, it was the genes that came from the original agrobacterium, but obviously sweet potato is not anymore diseased. Somehow, it has managed to tame those genes and use it for its own benefit, and perhaps even to the extent that sweet potato is only sweet potato because these genes are there. We don't know that yet for sure, but that's one theory we're working on. So the, uh, the sweet potato could be classified as a transgenic plant, right? Because it actually contains a gene that is not native to the sweet potato genome. Is that true? Uh, that's exactly right. And it was, in fact, it ended up there 
in the same way as scientists put their make their transgenic plants with the same bacteria and same system. So it's it's very similar to what what is actually trans. It is a transgenic plant. So the uh, variety called uh, Huachano, it, mm. it has a tDNA insert that actually disrupts a, a gene, an FBox gene, which uh, I'll explain for the audience, are genes that are associated with the turnover of specific proteins. So many proteins have roles in catalysis or structure within the plant. The FBox proteins are proteins that target them for their own destruction. Um Turning over the protein means that you limit its job. You stop its function. So do you know anything specifically about that FBox gene and what it does? And is that possibly linked to um, why sweet potatoes are sweet potatoes? Um, so we, we don't yet know what that particular FBox gene that, that is interrupted does. Um, FBox genes are, I mean, it's a family of genes, so they're involved in, in a lot of different things. So it, it would probably take a while before we figure out what that one in particular does. But what we do know is that there are... So what I haven't mentioned to you yet is that sweet potatoes are hexaploid. So that means that it has uh, three sets of chromosomes. Um, unlike um, most plants and we ourselves, most animals, uh, we have only one set of chromosome uh, with two different alleles. So sweet potato has six sets of them. And we know that at least there's at least two intact alleles are present in the sweet potato uh, genome. So uh, besides those that are interact, inter interrupted by the inserted tDNA, there are still some left that are still uninterrupted and could produce an, an actual functional protein. Well, we know they produce RNA, so. Okay, okay, that's actually a really good question because we know that sometimes in, in complex polyploids that we see silencing of subgenomes and this is good because you at least you're seeing the RNA so probably still is making a functional at least an allele of what this FBox protein does um, yeah. but so the tDNA is having some other effect and um, do we know anything about I mean do you have any any hypotheses perhaps as to how this tDNA insertion could have created a change that was identified by early um, breeders that led to its domestication? Well, one theory I'm working with, and uh, I mean, the only way to find out is to, to do knockouts, and, and we're thinking of doing some gene, gene editing for that, it, because all sweet potatoes have these genes, so <laughs> how, yeah. to, how, to, how to test it, right? You need to knock them out one by one. Mm -hmm. But one theory I have is, um, so um, as I mentioned previously, there are, there are several genes involved there in the synthesis of plant hormones, and, and particularly auxins and cytokinins. Um, and so I mentioned also to you that sweet potato is multiplied by cuttings. And uh, that means you just stick a cutting in the ground and it, it roots uh, and it grows. But a lot of its wild relatives are actually, you, you cut, take a cutting, you stick it in the ground, it dies. <laughs> it doesn't really root very easily. Um, and so... That could be one trait uh, that it's involved in, because these auxin hormones are particularly uh, important in root formation, for example. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's, it's it's just something simple as that that made it uh, possible to um, to multiply sweet potato by cuttings. Hmm. Um, there are many other options because plant hormones are, are involved in many different processes, but uh, but that's just one one of the theories I have. <laughs> but that's a really attractive hypothesis because if you're an early farmer and you want to vegetatively propagate, you know, especially if uh, if you're if maybe you're used to maybe regular potatoes, 
Uh, and that, that's the other question, maybe, is going backwards. Is the sweet potato St. Patrick with the, or well, is it located in the same place in the, in the uh, natural populations as the Solanum potato? Um, so Solana, um, yes, but in different kind of habitats. Um, so um, Solanum potato, um, its center of diversity is, let's say, from uh, from Colombia down to uh, to Chile. Uh, the whole Andes, basically, the whole Andean region. And the center of sweet potato has several centers of diversity. Uh, one is in uh, Central America and the other one is in, in Peru, let's say. Um, and then there's actually one in Papua New Guinea. Um, another interesting story. I won't go into that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so um, and, and probably it has been do- domesticated somewhere between the, the Yucatan Peninsula and uh, and. Colombia, Peru, uh, because that's where you find most of its uh, closest wild relatives, which are diploids, by the way. Um, you find a few tetraploids, um, but it's still very unclear what are actually the progenitors of sweet potato, because sweet potato only exists as a cultivated crop. There's no wild sweet potato. And are you aware of any other crops that have tDNA insertions or other evidence of horizontal gene transfer from bacteria? Um, not, not any uh, crops that are eaten in any case, but um, tobaccos, um, so Nicotiana tobacco, um, contains also a tDNA insertion and, and several of its related species as well. Um, and then there's, um, there's recently um, uh, a wild weed uh, called toad flax, or Linaria vulgaris, uh, was also found to contain uh, tDNAs uh, in it. Um, there's a few examples, but it's not very common. And I guess the the other interesting part of that is, you know, if we think about biotechnology and genetic engineering, there are many opponents of the practice that claim that tDNA integration is inherently dangerous. That you know, it's been like Terry uh, Terry Varane, um, uh, Don Huber, a number of folks say just introducing a horizontal gene into a plant makes it um, unfit. And does this mean that, uh, you know, the sweet potato has some unknown lurking danger? And is it something that you would even classify as unnatural? Uh, well, it's, by definition, it's not unnatural because it, it happened naturally, right? So there was no human in- intervention unless we think that the ancient Mayans were uh, somehow uh, genetic engineers and did it on purpose. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so, so it's a natural phenomenon. It happens, right? Uh, and it's, it's the disease caused by ground, ground, crown gall, the Viagrobacterium, is also a, a natural thing. I mean, in that case, it's not very good. But um, there's nothing inherently dangerous about the transfer of tDNA. DNA, I mean, it, there's nothing. We all consist of DNA. Uh, and there's, there's no reason why... Uh, the fact that you move DNA from one species to another, that would be dangerous. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a really important point. And it's one of the, uh, I think, one of the failing arguments that we really don't hear much anymore. I mean, there's a few folks out there who are a little bit long in the tooth who've been opponents of genetic engineering for 30 years now who still make that claim that really haven't caught up with the times that tDNA integration is something that we do find. And even in things like strawberry, we find at least 
what look like right borders and left borders or half of a right border, half of a left border. These things seem to be in there in some sort of ancient way. And I think as we continue to get gain more and more data from more and more genomes, such things will show up in more and more places. So we talked a lot about tDNA sequences influencing the way a plant was potentially domesticated. But there's all kinds of sequences that move around plant genomes or are introduced to plant genomes. And with your background in virology, do you find evidence of specific viruses that happen to maybe reshape the genome or potentially cause changes in traits? Um, yes, actually, um, it's, it's, it's quite well known that uh, certain viruses, uh, particularly um, uh, retrotranscribing DNA viruses in plants, um, some of them have the tendency to integrate into, um, into their host genomes, into plant genomes. And, and so you'll find remnants of these, of these sequences in many different plants. Um, and even in potato, for example, and the whole solanaceous family, actually, you, you find a lot of uh, uh, sequences which are similar to uh, tobacco vein clearing virus. And interestingly, most of these plants are uh, are resistant to that virus. Um, and actually, you could consider this, it's probably because when once these sequences integrated into the plant, it activated its descent defense system against those viruses um, because it, it recognized them as, as foreign. And so it became resistant to those viruses. And again, this is very analogous to what what one does when one is engineering virus resistance uh, through 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 um, through GM technology, one introduces a piece of a virus into the plant, inducing its defense response, and, and thereby makes the plant resistant to the virus. Um, so, so there's 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 several analogies in, in different points, things that have happened naturally, right? And and we are copying them basically, we scientists. It's really kind of interesting because especially when you think about that and then you think about how we've the recent uncovering of the CRISPR-Cas9 system, you know, the here viral remnants are providing information for this very simple organism to kind of remember what its mm -hmm. threats have been. And it turns out plants are doing the same thing. And I forget that um, I, I, I always like to remind people about the huge amount of viral load that's present inside most plant genomes and the way it moves around and changes genomes and reshapes genomes because it really makes the process of genetic engineering seem kind of trivial. Yeah, that's right. There's there's so much going on inside the plant, moving and changing in a simple cross. Uh, you know, whole chunks of chromosomes get, get moved around. Um, so this this minute change that we as uh, as scientists make when we introduce one particular gene is really nothing compared to all the changes that are happening when you just make a simple cross. So Jan, if uh, if people wanted to learn more about about CIP CIP or what your work is is doing, where could they find you on social media or on the internet? Um, yeah, so um, I have a I have a Twitter account Jan uh, very straightforward easy to find. Um, and um, for the International Potato Center, uh, there's a website, www.sippotato.org, and, uh, and you can find uh, all the information about, uh, about our organization and what we're doing there. Excellent. And I'll put all the uh, links to these on our website for, that corresponds with this particular episode. 
So, uh, you know, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, next time we have you on, I'd like to know all about that New Guinea <laughs> Center of Domestication because that sounds a little bit off the beaten path. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a, definitely a really cool story there about a bird or somebody who got way off course carrying a potato, and we'll have to sort that out. But thank you yes. so much. <laughs> thank you so much for being our guest today. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time Sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.